Keju Sigaelpa. Yeah, look, it says it's right here on my fucking laptop. C S I Tegu C. That's what I said. That's not what you said. Yes, it is, and it's recording. Is that okay? We're gonna listen to it because you did not say Tegu Sigaelpa. Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about the kidnapping of Adolf Kors III. And this is going to be, what, like a three-parter probably? It's really long. Solid 20 minutes. I picked this one. And uh, where did you do your research for this one, Katie? The book for this one was The Death of an Heir by Philip Jett. And uh, where are we going in America for this one? We are going to Golden, Colorado. Golden, Colorado. Colorado, we are all up in you, giving you some history, taking it back, talking about Coors. Oh, they named a baseball field after this whole this whole scenario, not necessarily the crime. The family? The family. They're, they made, like, all of Golden's money. Yeah. And they basically made them a city. And the worst beer in America. Are you kidding me? That's the champagne of beers. No, that's High Life. Miller the... High Life. These ones are the talking frogs. No. This one's the grab the bull by the horns? Not sure. You're referencing so many beer commercials. I just... <laughs> which which one is this? This one's... This is uh, the one that the can turns blue. Rocky Mountain fuel. Rocky Mountain sure. water. Yes. Spring water. Is yeah. this the one you... No, it's Corona. It's infused by the Rockies. Ah, uh, yes. This one is infused and bottled in the Rocky Mountains. Coors. Oh, I should have done a little. Oh, the silver bullet. The silver bullet, yeah. But these ones are yellow. Regular Coors is yellow, right? Yeah, the original or whatever is yellow, but Coors, Coors Light Genuine Draft? No. <laughs> I, mean, I used to be a bartender, guys. All right, Kitty, whenever you're ready, why don't you uh, go ahead and start us off on this one? Adolf Coors III was born January 12th, 1915, and was the firstborn grandson of Adolf Coors, the founder of the Coors Beer Company located in Golden, Colorado. Adolf, or Ad, as he preferred to be called, was the heir to the Coors Brewing fortune and named CEO when his father stepped down. Sounds like he had a fairly stout upbringing. He also did not. They were raised to be very humble and not brag about their money. Oh. So. Well, why Why do you think he wanted to go by Ad? There's this whole time period between like 1920-something and like 1945-ish that that name just fell out of popularity. <laughs> There was, okay, so here's the thing. He was born in 1915, and so there's a good, um, like, 20 years probably before anyone knew anyone else by that name that was a terrible person. So I don't think him be going by ad has to do anything. I mean, I with... think when he was 15, Adolf Hitler actually won Time Man of oh, the Year. Oh, you said it. Oh, you said it. They also spell their name differently, don't they? He was married to Mary Grant Coors, who also came from a successful, well-to-do family, and the two had four children together. Before his death, the family had moved from Golden to a 480-acre ranch in Morrison, Colorado, around 15 miles outside of Denver. You know, rich people always tend to buy incredibly large swaths of land, and I wonder if this is just so they can hunt humans. Uh, Call your dad. <laughs> Wait, this next guy's name is Joseph Corbett Jr. Any, any, any relation to the Corbetts that have a baseball stadium here? In Tucson? The neighborhood what? I lived in is called Corbett Neighborhood. What? Katie? We're not in Corbett Neighborhood. We're in Maryville Manor. 
Our perpetrator in this case, Joseph Corbett Jr., was born October 25th, 1928. Hey, that's my birthday. Nothing ever good comes on October 25th. No sources have any information on his childhood. All we really know is that after high school, he began to socially withdraw and completely isolate himself. His IQ was 148, which is considered genius, and he attended college for a short period of time before dropping out when his mother died. Apparently, she fell off a balcony of her home and landed on a fence, leaving her comatose for five days before her death. How did she land on the fence that enabled her to not die immediately? It did not specify. So, I'm thinking that she just hit her head real hard. Like, I don't think she got speared or anything with a fence. Did she? I don't know. It didn't really specify. It just said that she fell off a balcony and he wished that he had repaired the balcony. Before or after? Before. Because what if the balcony was fine before and then he pushed her off? (laughs) He was at college. Now he wishes that he had repaired the balcony before the police came. Why are your theories all so bad? (laughs) They are quickly thought out and not researched. They are quickly thought it would have pointed the finger more if he repaired the fence immediately after she fell off to her death. Uh, well, the balcony. The balcony, yes. He balcony. should probably repair the fence right away. Yeah, because his cat He might should get probably out. take her to the hospital. Well, she, he wasn't there. Oh, I think he might have been there, bud. Corbett later said about his mother's death, quote, It's only natural for children to have a desire to kill their parents. And from time to time, I've had that desire. But I did not kill my mother. So we can assume that he killed his mother. Great. So here I am defending some jerkwad that killed his mom. Have you guys ever thought about killing your parents? Of course. What? (laughs) What? That was way too quick. (laughs) Well, yeah, everyone has. I have never once thought about killing either of my parents. I'm going to call the CRC right now. It's every kid has the fantasy of killing their parents no they don't i have never thought about killing my parents really i had a fantasy of being an orphan but i didn't have to kill my parents to be the orphan because you like batman no i just it's it's (laughs) intrusive thoughts happen sometimes katie and yes i have thought about killing my parents at one time but not like legitimately killing my parents no but like you thought about a way to do it no it's just been like fantasy mind wandering you know, like when you're just sitting there thinking and like, oh, I could probably kill my parents and get away with it. I, I, okay, so I take it back. I've never thought of killing my parents ever. Not once, never. You're gonna have Your so mom listens fun. to this. I know. She's probably thought about smothering me before. She definitely has thought about smothering you before. See? It's totally different. How is that different? It's an intrusive thought. I can't help my intrusive thoughts. I know. But the way you first described it, it made it sound like you've, like, sat down and been like, all right, so if I were going to kill my mother. After dropping out of college and isolating himself even more, Corbett began a criminal lifestyle. In 1950, Corbett stole a car and picked up a hitchhiker who he attempted to rob. Supposedly, something went wrong, and the hitchhiker ended up dead. He had been shot in the back of the head twice, leading investigators to believe it was cold-blooded murder. Obviously, right? I mean, most self-defense happens when the the person is facing away from you, right? No. Doing horse kicks back. (laughs) My little sister got grounded for horse kicking me in the knee one time. Is it because she has a saddle-shaped head? Oh, my God. She's just good at horse kicking? How how many times are you going to run that joke into the ground? I have to hear it from her every time this goes live. Every time. He took a plea deal for second-degree murder and was sent to prison. After gaining the trust of the warden, he was sent to a minimum security facility after five years. He used this opportunity to escape prison, sneaking out through a window and hiding out in Los Angeles for a few months before heading for Denver, Colorado. Changed his name to Walter Osborne and lived an unsuspecting life 
Working menial jobs before deciding in 1960 he needed to do something significant to make money. Is it just me or does Walter Osborne kind of sound like a Marvel villain? It was his uncle. Oh, is it? Yeah. He just stole his uncle's name? Great villain name. The only problem was that when he first moved into his apartment in Denver, he spelled it without an E, and then like six months later, he started putting an E at the end of it. Corbett began stalking Adolf Kors months prior to carrying out his plan. Neighbors, ranch hands on the Coors property, and even the Coors family noticed a yellow mercury sitting on the roads leading to the ranch. All of them assumed that it was illegal poachers, as they were on game preserve and often saw hunters still attempting to use the land. On top of staking out the property, Corbett purchased four sets of leg irons and four sets of handcuffs. So the key word there is like poachers, right? Because they're there illegally. So if someone had given a shit about the wildlife, the dude would have at the very least come up on a forest ranger or something or thrown up some kind of red flags, right? I mean, everyone noticed him, but he never actually shot anything, so there's not much they can do. He was just sitting there, and they said that he was just probably staking out the land for game, but he never hunted. February 9th, 1960 began normally for the Coors family. Had woke up early, tending to the ranch before heading off to work around 8 a.m. His normal route to the brewery took him directly to the highway, but construction forced him to use a long, desolate stretch of road, leading him over a bridge at Turkey Creek. As Ad approached the bridge, he noticed a yellow Mercury parked with its hood up and a man waving him over. The bridge was single car, so Ad parked behind the Mercury and left it running while he got out to help the man. No one truly knows what happened on the bridge, but it's assumed that Corbett pulled a pistol and ordered Ad into his car. Ad reached for the gun, attempting to grab it from Corbett's hands, and a struggle ensued. It ended with Ad, of course, being shot twice in the back, the bullets puncturing his lung and causing him to bleed out quickly, lying in the dirt. Corbett wrapped his body in a blanket and placed it in the back seat of his car, driving it far out into the forest and dumping it. He returned home to his apartment, where he had a perfectly typed ransom note waiting to be mailed. He had purchased a significant amount of camping gear before the murder, planning on either hiding out after killing Ad or taking him camping to wait for the ransom. It's not known if his intention truly was kidnapping or if he planned the entire time to kill him on the bridge. Now, how long did it take him to come up with this plan? A couple months. So he he knew Ad's route? He knew all that stuff? That's why he was taking him out for a while. Ah. And then I think he had probably the idea to kidnap someone for a long time and then it took him a couple months to figure out who exactly okay so so what do we assume he knows about uh the Coors family at this point is it just that this guy's rich yeah okay that's all he was after because he was tired of working these shitty jobs because you can't get a good job when you're under the false identity running from the law basically so he was tired of working shit jobs and he wanted a ton of money so he could get the fuck out of the country makes sense i guess maybe he thought that if he did Obviously, this all went out the window when he shot him, but maybe he thought that if he did such an excellent job of pulling off this heist, that Mr. Coors would be like, I really like your attitude. Let me give you a job in my brewery as the head man. And uh, so then he thought he was going to, you know, get himself a job that way. A good job, finally. Around 10.20 a.m., a milkman approached the bridge and noticed Ad's car running but abandoned. He waited for around 15 minutes, assuming the driver would return and move it. When no one showed, he backed the car off the bridge and continued on his route, hoping to find a telephone. Three deliveries later, he found one and called Colorado Highway Patrol, who responded to the scene and discovered the car belonged to none other than Adolf Kors. His brothers were called, and they went to the scene, where they confirmed that a hat found lying in the creek belonged to Ad. Mary Kors was also brought to the bridge and informed her husband was missing. Immediately, everyone knew it was a kidnapping, but the area around the bridge was still extensively searched. How did they know it was... Uh, kidnapping and not just him wandering off there had been like a string of kidnappings 
and because he's the third, his grandfather and his father had both been, like, on lists of people that had kidnapped someone famous. Like, one guy they arrested after he kidnapped someone, and he had a list of, like, five people, and one of the cores was on it, so. Interesting. It's always kind of in the back of their mind. thought you were going to say that his father had been kidnapped for ransom, and the original cores man had been kidnapped for ransom. No, they got very close, though. 73 men from the sheriff's office were assigned to the case, and over 150 men, including volunteers, searched a mile and a half radius looking for clues. How was there no blood evidence if he bled to death on this terrible one-way bridge and was then wrapped in a tarp? There was blood, but they were hoping that he just got like hit over the head with the butt of the gun, because the blood was so soaked into the dirt, it took him a minute to figure out that there was enough blood for him to be dead. So they uh. figured he got in a fight and had been actually kidnapped. So they actually did find the blood. And figure it out. It just took them a minute. Basically, yeah. But obviously it's the 60s. We don't have a technology back then, so they couldn't <laughs> confirm it was his blood. Uh, is that strawberry jelly? Not like that, but they couldn't <laughs> immediately take it to a lab and confirm it was his blood. They could I, only confirm it was blood. I think back then they actually did taste it. And then they taste the victim's blood and they compare them. They but, didn't have any of the... Well, obviously in this instance they didn't have it. But that's how they did DNA testing back in the day. No, they honestly just sat around smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey out of a flask saying cool stuff about murder. They were able, they actually did find at a school a couple miles away, they found more blood and they figured it was him and then they tested it and it was dog blood. Oh, so, poor puppy. Yeah, I got hit by a car. So they could figure out that it was human and not dog, but... By tasting it. That was about it. The next day, the FBI was officially allowed to assume Coors had been taken across state lines, allowing them to join the case. Why were they now able to assume that he had been taken across state lines? Because for the FBI to be involved in a kidnapping, you have to cross state lines. Right, but what made them think that he had? They have a certain period of time where they can just assume, and that way they're allowed to take charge of the case. Uh, so... Like, he got kidnapped six hours away, now it's been seven, so we can Basically, go after him. Basically, they're faking knowing that he was taken across state lines so they're able to join the case so they can help local law enforcement. I thought FBI had jurisdiction over any kidnapping, not just kidnapping across state lines. No. You have to cross state lines. Interesting. To be federal. It might be different now, but back in the 60s, it was pretty much everything, bank robberies and stuff like that, you had to... Across state lines for whatever reason. They tapped every one of the Coors family phones, waiting for the kidnapper to call. Around 3 p.m., the ransom note arrived. It read, Mrs. Coors, your husband has been kidnapped. His car is by Turkey Creek. Call the police or FBI. He dies. Cooperate. He lives. Ransom, 200,000 in tens and 300,000 in twenties, which is equal to 4.3 million today. There will be no negotiating. Bills, used, non-consecutive, unrecorded, unmarked. Warning. We will know if you call the police or record the serial numbers. Directions. Place money and this letter and envelope in one suitcase or bag. Have two men with a car ready to make the delivery. When all set, advertise a tractor for sale in Denver Post Section 69. Sign Ad King Ranch, Fort Lupton. Deliver immediately after receiving call. Any delay will be regarded as stall to set up a stakeout. Understand this. Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is that money. If you follow the instructions, he will be released unharmed within 48 hours after the money is received. They just want to get that money. Timing on this whole thing seems a little off. Like, she's not supposed to call the police or the FBI, yet the FBI is sitting huddled around the phone while the mail carrier is like, Doop, drops the ransom note in the mail slot. 
Like, if he was going to use snail mail, he should have sent it the day before the kidnapping, I think. Plus, then you have to do it. If you've already sent the letter, you're like, oh, now I've got to Did the mailman bring it? No, they intercepted it at the post office. Well, same difference. He sent it snail mail. That takes a minute. Usually, like, three days. Well, this was In like the same day. city back then, yeah, it only it didn't take long. Yeah, the mail was efficient back then. It still is. You can mail a letter within the city in one day. But the point is, he should have done it the day before. But then what if they received it too early and uh, knew that he was going to be kidnapped? Well, that's a risk you've got to take if you want the timing to line up properly. Or you could just assume that you would have him kidnapped for three days. But this guy doesn't care. The dude's dead. Yeah, basically. Poor planning. He's not going to get a job in the... Coors Brewing Factory with that type of planning. That evening, Corbett returned home from running errands after the early morning murder. He began to grow paranoid quickly after returning home, looking out the window and spotting a man sitting in a parked car, facing his apartment window. At first, he thought he was being ridiculous, but after the second and third time looking out the window and seeing the man, he went into full-on panic. Packed every belonging he could take with him, wiped down every surface in the apartment, and let his landlord know he was leaving. By early Wednesday morning, he was on the road, headed east, likely not sure exactly where he was going. The man Corbett believed was watching him was a complete coincidence, but police were beginning to get an idea he may be responsible. When canvassing the neighborhood, one neighbor remembered seeing the yellow mercury weeks before the kidnapping. He had what no other neighbors did, a partial license plate. He knew it started with AT62 and believed it was AT6205. I can appreciate that it helped in this case, but can we just take a minute to acknowledge what a goddamn busy body this neighbor was because who like memory logs partial plates of their neighbor's cars i mean what made him notice the mercury in the first place Ooh, he was like alan jackson because it had been sitting just on the roads for weeks and they thought it was an illegal poacher oh so okay. if they found a dead deer they wanted to be able to say this is who killed it please find him we're on game preserve that would make sense that's why you would write down people's license plates as well so he well, wasn't crazy mentally. about a mercury no, he just remembered. Sometimes you look at plates and you just remember them, right? You even know your own plate? Uh, Serena's was ANL48. You should know your own license plate number. Mine is something something CCW. My dad's tr- old truck's license plate is HLW829. So here's a task. When we get done, you guys go out there and you memorize your license plate. Because if you get pulled over, people steal plates off of cars. So if you get pulled over and you don't know your license plate, they're going to think that you stole someone else's plate and put it on your car. Except that my license plate matches my everything about me and my truck. We're one. Police were able to find four Mercuries with plates starting in that sequence, and the first three they checked out were not yellow. They ended up at Corbett's apartment only hours after he had left town and cleaned out all of his belongings. Paranoia for the win on that one. There was a few things he had left behind, one of them being a bucket with metal chain inside. On it was a single fingerprint. So he had a bucket with chains in it? Mm-hmm. Okay. You never leave your chains behind. It was just I mean, like... yeah, who leaves their chain bucket behind? Like, you can't, you can't get every fingerprint off of every nook and cranny of a chain. That's just impossible. Yeah. I mean, he had a... Mercury, I highly doubt he could fit all of his belongings and the bucket of chain in the car. Yeah. I'm just saying, put it over your shoulders, put it around your waist. Like, just leave the plates. Take your bucket chain. That's true. What do you need it for, though? Where else is he going to hold the chain? What, is he just going to go buy a chain and have it flinging yeah, around all to, willy-nilly? Go to any hardware store and buy more chain. Yeah, but you don't have your bucket. Yeah, you can't not You can have... also buy a bucket at a hardware store. Wow, Katie, you have no loyalty to your buckets. But let's continue on. Cops like, I found a print on this, on this, like right here. He's like, are you yanking my chain? Unfortunately, back in the 60s, fingerprint analysis had to be done with a magnifying glass and a very patient person. Actually, I don't think that fingerprint evidence is fully admissible 
anymore. Not anymore, but yeah. it was back then. Hey, and I'm, for a very long time. Sure, sure, sure. But what if the dude has dust in his eye one day or a scratched cornea and all of a sudden they all look very similar? I could say that may happen. He would call out of work. No, you don't always call out of work. Well, actually, yes, you do. Yeah, if you have a scratched cornea and you can't see. And, and your whole job is to see. Yeah, I guess you're right. out of work, especially when you work for the FBI. Yeah, because... don't take kindly on mistakes. Let's say he can analyze, like, 25 prints a day. That's 25 prints that he's going to analyze wrong because he can't see them. The FBI had over 150 million prints on file, all which had to be compared by hand to their latent print. Tell me they don't go through at least 25 a day, Rory. God damn. Did they have more than one person going through all these prints? I assume so. I can't for sure guarantee that, but... 150 million. Now, do, yes. do they actually have... The, now, when you say on file, does that mean that there is a single file with fingerprints of every known criminal? Or is this just like each area of that the FBI covers has their own little file system for people in that area? Basically, I think each jurisdiction had their own file of people. Because okay. back then, you, I'm pretty sure you had to give you prints to get your license. Ah, okay. So they just had those. They had the name Walter Osborne, but the name came back as a man that didn't exist outside of having a driver's license. While agents worked on comparisons, the ad requested in the ransom letter was run on Sunday the 14th. Mary Coors sat up and waited all night, hoping for the call for her husband to return, holding out hope he was still alive despite the huge amount of blood at the bridge. She did receive one call from a man requesting $60,000, a lot less than the 500000 in the ransom letter. Agents gently informed Mary it was a copycat kidnapper. I mean, the dude might as well throw his hat in the ring, though, whoever that was. There's just ransom money being passed out. He's like, I'll, I'll try to get some of that. Risk versus reward on that is incredibly terrible, though, because that's the number one spot you're going to get picked up is if you're doing a money exchange for a hostage. Being part of that end of it is the worst part to be part of. Corbett was still on the move and had no idea the ad had been run. On the 17th, he arrived in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and promptly parked his mercury near a garbage dump, doused it in gasoline, and tossed a match inside. Honestly, though, that's the proper way to dispose of a mercury, whether the cops are looking for it or not. He'd taken the plates off before setting the fire, apparently forgetting that VINs existed, which police used to trace the car back to Walter Osborne. Even though the FBI knew where he was, they were still working on purely circumstantial evidence that didn't allow them to put out any sort of APB. Corbett managed to make it to Toronto, Canada, where he found a room at a boarding house and a job as a lab tech. So confident he wouldn't be caught, he continued using the alias Walter Osborne and did nothing to change his appearance. Basically the opposite of earlier when his paranoia kept him out of custody. On March 5th, only three weeks after the search for a print began, they found a match. Now the FBI knew why their Walter Osborne was running. He was an escaped convict who already had a murder charge on his record. J. Edgar Hoover turned up the heat, placing Corbett on the 10 most wanted list and plastering his face across the entire U.S. Corbett began to grow nervous again and moved to Winnipeg, forgetting again to change his alias, but still managing to fly under the radar. I was going to say, when you said J. Edgar Hoover really turned up the heat, I was like, what, did he put on more lipstick? He was such a piece of shit. He was. He was also a cross-trans? Those are not words. (laughs) Definitely not words to be put on the podcast. Months went by with no updates on the case, despite extensive work by the FBI. In September, Mary Corps' worst fear was confirmed when a man went hiking looking for a place to target shoot in Devil's Head Peak. He came across a pair of dress pants, which he kicked off the trail, causing the pockets to jingle. While looting through them, he found a keychain engraved with the letters AC III. The man immediately rushed down the mountain and called police, who arrived to find Adolf Kors III's bones spread down the entire mountainside, carried away by scavenging animals. That's always like a bad omen. If you don't provide a proper burial, the rest of your trip goes really, really poorly. 
having bones scattered across the hill just is a bad omen for whoever did it. On the second day of the search, his skull was finally found, and a comparison of dental records confirmed it was Corus's body. Why is it a bad... Okay, I have to ask. Why is it a bad omen? It's already a bad omen because you murdered somebody. Because of Oregon Trail. Okay, I'm just going to leave it at that. Back in Canada, Corbett headed for Vancouver, hoping to find a ship to get him out of the country. In late October, a magazine ran Corbett's photo in many names. One man called on the 25th and reported he'd worked with Corbett, giving the RCMP an area to begin their search. The horse cops? Yes, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Which is basically the Canadian FBI. Hey! Yeah. Didn't you know? <laughs> oh, they ride horses. That's uh, that's not a very efficient way to get across country. <laughs> what you know about crossing Saskatchewan on a horseback? Nothing. Yeah, I was kind of thinking more about the whole Canada. Huh. The whole of Canada is like a neighborhood. I'm getting Irish. Continue, Kitty. On the 29th, constables were briefed on a car Corbett had rented, a bright red Pontiac, paid for with a bad check, and never returned. First a yellow car, now a bright red car, and he's just not good at keeping a low profile these days. Or, he's just not good at keeping a low profile. These days, he's caught in like 45 minutes, I think. I think he's probably... In this day and age, kidnapping is a lot easier to track because they have uh, satellites that can track basically every human being, whatever they're doing, wherever they are. Not with a professional letter like he had that throws him off. I guess that's true. One of the constables remembered seeing a car matching the exact description at a hotel nearby. Inside, the clerk looked at a photo and told him, yes, Thomas Wainwright did live there and was actually in his room at that moment. That's the name he was going by? Yes. Thomas Wainwright? Mm-hmm. Wainwright. Sounds kind of like Thomas, Thomas Wayne. Thomas Wainwright? Thomas Wayne, which was Batman's dad, Bruce Wayne's father. Is he Michael Caine? <laughs> not, we're not doing that again. So it didn't make sense the first time. Detectives rushed over and apprehended Joe Corbett Jr., who said, I'm your guy, something that later helped secure his conviction. Now, you see, I was starving, so I ordered a pizza, and when they knocked at my door, I thought it was the pizza guy. So I said, I'm your guy! It had nothing to do with the murder of the Brew Baron. I was not doing a voice. It was trying to come out, but there was no actual... It was like a hint of Boston. <laughs> I know, I know. After waiving his extradition hearing and being returned to Jefferson County, Colorado, Corbett's trial lasted 13 days and ended with the jury finding him guilty of first-degree murder. He served 19 years before being released on parole in July 1979. How do you only serve 19 years for first-degree murder? That's not even a life sentence. I have no idea, honestly. Parole. Nice parole board. He's giving out handies to the parole board? He was given, back. I think in Colorado it's like five to life, basically, so you only have to serve we talked more than five at, years. On one of our previous episodes, I think. Terrible. Terrible rules. Fucking Colorado. He flew to San Francisco, then back to Denver the next day to close his bank account, violating his parole. After three days, he returned himself in and served 17 more months before being released again, this time on five-year probation. He kept his head down, living an isolated life in a small apartment before being diagnosed with cancer. On August 24th, 2009, neighbors knocked on his door after he didn't pick up his morning paper. When they received no response and entered the room, they found Joseph Corbett Jr. dead of a single self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He died the way he enjoyed living, completely alone. Do we know how long he had cancer for? I don't. After all this... He just offed himself? Yeah, mm -hmm. that gunshot seems redundant, doesn't it? I mean, I, I get it going out on your own terms and whatnot, but I, I mean, you're a murderer, a twice murderer, 
and you've got to live basically most of your life outside of prison up to this point. Well, it's a little cancer. <laughs> huh. I don't know. I find that's kind of crazy that he shot himself. And I do you know if he actually enjoyed being alone or did that actually contribute to him shooting himself? In the no, head? I think he legitimately enjoyed being alone. I mean, I enjoy being alone, but... He completely... He was one of those people that just completely isolates themselves and prefers to be that way. Interesting. And when when they get sick of isolating themselves, they just shoot themselves and go away. Okay. So, is, is that it for this one? That is it. Man. I wasn't expecting that. That's a surprise ending on that one. Kind of out of left field. It's a weird twist on justice. I just can't believe this dude got away with murder twice, basically. Basically, yeah. yeah he, never... I mean, he, didn't even, he didn't even get away. He got caught and charged with murder he just still didn't got spend off that much time yeah in jail yeah no one really punished him for escaping prison yeah it's just like oh you escaped you plead guilty to first degree <laughs> murder cool they're like oh we actually give out uh cookies for people who have figured out how to escape so have a cookie bud i just don't it doesn't make any sense this guy murders a person two people two people and is basically living his best life in an apartment building free on the outside for 50 years i'm gonna say he didn't actually ever want that job at the brewing company you're probably right well guys is that gonna do it for this week yep awesome well as always if you have any questions comments or concerns feel free to send us an email at four corners crimecast at gmail.com that's f-o-u-r corners crimecast at gmail.com you can find us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash four corners crimecast on instagram at four corners crimecast and on twitter at four corners crime and give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. That is F-O-U-R, cornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list and to send us ideas for episodes or to get your free sticker from our merch store. Just enter the code Bingo Bango at checkout and we will ship out your sticker 100% free. So hope you guys enjoyed this interesting story and uh, have a good week. Yeah. See you next time. Adios, motherfuckers. Thought about Thought killing about your sister. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>